welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast that usually is unconcerned with books or poetry, but today <laughs> I suspect a little may just slide in amongst the radiology. My name is Andrew Dixon, and joining me, the as yet unpublished author of a Harry Potter oh, knockoff God. novel, it's Not my co host, Frank Gaylor. <laughs> you keep yes. poking me about this, Dixon, but I very much doubt you will ever ever see the light of day, not even as a joke. (laughs) Oh, mate, I'm sure you would love to see it out there, your name in lights. Maybe we can have uh, an author reading in a wine bar somewhere where I stand (laughs) at the front and pretentiously read it out. That's called a book (laughs) launch, mate. I think we should do it. (laughs) Have you got a name for this book? Oh, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe a working title. I haven't looked at it in, in a long time. I'll have to dig it up. We'll get there. We'll get there. Maybe like for a 50th episode spectacular or something, you know, we can bring it out for that. Well, that's soon. This is episode, what, 34? <laughs> that's too soon. <laughs> episode 100, you reckon? If we're still going for 100, I'll do a reading. Oh, good one. Good one. Someone, Murph, can you clip that out? So we've got that stored. So he's definitely going to do it on episode 100. So for today's episode, Gaylord, we're going to listen to the audio from a lecture that author, hence the book Mm -hmm. author theme, that author and health activist Sue Robbins presented at Radiopedia 2023 back in July. Sue lives in Canada and has experienced the healthcare system both as a patient and as a caregiver. I'll leave her to explain the context for both of those. Uh, So in this lecture, she reflects in particular upon her interactions with radiology professionals and has what I think are some really excellent insights to share, thought-provoking and possibly practice-changing for some listeners, I reckon, Gaylord. Mm-hmm. So Sue has a couple of books available, which I might plug for her in the outro, <laughs> but this is certainly not a paid promotion. We just had Sue at the conference, and as I watched, I thought it might work really, really well as a podcast to use that audio. So that's what we're doing. So just to head off, anyone out there who is listening to the podcast and thinks, Hey, I've got a book. <laughs> I've got a, a medical imaging scanner. I've got a PAX software. I've got an AI application. I'd love to come on your podcast. Uh, no, we uh, we won't be doing any episodes uh, based on your requests. Unless it's a Harry Potter knockoff. Exactly. We'll be far too busy <laughs> reading Gaylord's Harry Potter <laughs> chapters. <laughs> Now, because Sue's audio is taken from a video lecture, there are times where she refers to photographs that are on the screen or a quote. I don't think that will detract from your audio listening experience. So I'm going to hit play on this recording now, Frank, and then uh, we'll be back for another chat in the outro. Okay, looking forward to it. My name's Sue Robbins, and I live on the West Coast of Canada. I'm a mom, a caregiver, an author, and also a former cancer patient. I'll be talking about three main points today, the importance of listening to and acting on patient stories, understanding the ramification of language that's used with patients, and rethinking the concept of health literacy. This is a picture of one of my children on the left, And he's where my caregiving perspective comes from. That is my son, my youngest son, Aaron. He's now 20 years old. And you might um, see from his facial features that he has Down syndrome. Now, Down syndrome is not only an intellectual disability. It comes with a host of other medical issues. 
So our family became very involved with the Children's Hospital after Aaron was born. And in fact, I ended up working at two children's hospitals in family engagement positions. The other photo of, is of me in a hospital gown in the change room at the, at the cancer hospital. I was diagnosed with breast cancer six years ago and underwent treatment, which of course included a lot of medical imaging and time spent with radiation therapists during my treatment. So today, I'm going to share both my caregiver and my patient perspective with you as a lay person, because I'm not a clinician. I'm going to do a reading from my first book <laughs> to demonstrate what patient-centered care looks like in a diagnostic imaging appointment to me. And your job as my audience is to listen and to think about how you apply what I say, what the pieces of my story to your own workplace. So I think listening is great as a first step, but the action part is important too. So this is a chapter called The Tale of Two Appointments. I present these two experiences to demonstrate how easy it is to be kind, how it does not take more time, and how kindness is up to individuals and a lack of kindness cannot be blamed on the system. Never forget the systems made up of people. Even in a healthcare culture that does not promote kindness for its own staff, there is opportunity for exceptional folks to go against culture to demonstrate caring for those they've committed to serving. Example one, the ultrasound. I waited among a bank of chairs in the hall, the first appointment of the day. A gentleman pushing a laundry cart called down the hall to me. Hello there. This perked me up and made me smile. Scared, anxious me sitting alone in the cancer hospital for my first post-cancer treatment scan. Hello there mattered. A man came out of the ultrasound room, a man to do my breast ultrasound, but he had a warm smile and he called me by name. Come and get changed, he said. I'll meet you in the room. Put the gown on with the back open, he added, before he disappeared. I was greeted warmly and clearly told what to do. I appreciated the option of the gown. This will make sense to you when I read my second story. I changed and went into the room. The lights were darkened and there was soft classical music playing. The environment was comforting. The whole ultrasound took about half an hour. This nice man talked to me the whole time. He asked me about my cancer treatment in a conversational kind of way. He told me what he was doing as he was doing it and shared with me what he was going to do next. Providing information about what was happening and what to expect next was a great comfort. He said, this might hurt, Tell me if you feel pain. He also said, I'm almost done, as he was wrapping up. He told me when he left the room and why. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge my pain. I was still wound tight as a top, clearly worried that all my cancer wasn't gone. He said to me, don't be worried. I knew full well he wasn't allowed to tell me anything about my scan. The results of the ultrasound would be faxed to my oncologist the next week. His don't be worried validated my concern and was actually sweet. He lessened my anxiety with his words. I walked out feeling okay. It wasn't what this man did, it was how he did it. And none of it took more time. Surprisingly to me, it did not matter one bit he was a male technologist because of his compassionate approach. And then, one hour later, in sharp contrast, I experienced the cold, the officious, the not-so-kind experience. Example 2. The Mammogram I had a mammogram earlier that month, but I've been called back for another appointment. 
I asked the booking clerk when she phoned, why do I have to come back? She said she didn't know. So I spent sleepless nights thinking they found more cancer. Not telling me why I had to come in again seemed cruel. My husband, having dropped our son off at school, met me for the appointment. We sat in one crowded waiting room until I was called into another waiting room. On the door it said, women only. No men were allowed. I'll just pause here to say, as we know, men can get breast cancer too, so I'm not quite sure what this policy was about. My husband had to sit on a bench outside the elevator in the hall for the next hour. Not permitting my partner to accompany me is not patient or family friendly. I sat in the second waiting room for a long time. I was hoping I wouldn't get the same technologist as before as she was unfriendly. It turns out I got another woman who was equally unfriendly. I knew then that unfriendly was a culture of this diagnostic imaging center, and only the most exceptional clinicians would rise above it. There was a sign that said, Dear patients, we no longer routinely change patients into gowns unless they are having additional concerns. We hope this improves our efficiency and reduces our environmental impact. The option for a gown is available if preferred. I knew to expect it because I'd been there before, so I was wise to them. I brought a cardigan to wear in the mammogram room. At my last appointment, I had to strip from the waist up in front of the technologist and stood there, unnecessarily exposed, cold and topless. This time I brought my own cover-up. There's so much to say about this sign. First, the idea of being efficient by not encouraging gowns is baloney. (laughs) I sat in the waiting room for 40 minutes. 40 minutes is plenty of time to change into a gown, isn't it? And the environmental impact? Yes, I guess doing laundry is bad for the environment, but not having a gown is bad for my dignity. All my years of hating hospital gowns, and I never would have guessed their solution to sterile gowns, would be to take away the gown. Yes, I could have taken a gown, but it was clearly not encouraged. There were other signs too, saying no cell phones. There was a stereo on the floor, tuned into a Christmas music station that played loud commercials and cut in and out as people walked past. The room was packed. All of us women were lined up, our fear palpable. Signage and physical space set the tone for the whole patient experience. Once I was called in, I had to strip from the waist up. I put my cardigan back on and pulled it tightly around me. The woman did not introduce herself. She did not tell me what she was going to do. I said casually, it's too bad we don't have gowns. Gowns just get in the way, she responded. Oh, dignity starts with giving options to minimize patient nudity. Do I really have to say this? I don't want to discourage women from getting mammograms, but this mammogram hurt a lot. She did tell me they wanted a closer picture of one part of my breast, which happened to be in an awkward position close to my arm. I was jammed into the mammogram machine. I whimpered as she tightened the machine around my breast, this one, my cancer side, still swollen with lymphedema from my lymph node removal. She did not acknowledge my pain and clamped down on it some more. Not acknowledging pain does not help with suffering. In fact, it increases it. She must have taken 10 more images. Each time it hurt more. I tried to breathe, but I was told to hold my breath. I was starting to feel dizzy and clammy. I had no idea when she would be done. Being left in the dark about what's going on is anxiety-provoking in an already anxiety-provoking situation. Suddenly, it was mercifully over. I stood in the corner, my back turned and got dressed. I was told to sit in the waiting room again, but I didn't know why. Another woman came out 20 minutes later and told me I could go. 
I wasn't informed what was to happen next or when my test results would be shared with me. I got out of there as fast as I possibly could. I met my husband in the hall and he gave me a big hug. What took so long? Did they find something? He said, clearly alarmed. I shook my head and said, please just take me home. I know how to speak up. I also know how to submit a complaint, but I have to say a lot of good it's done me in the past. Sometimes all we can do is put our head down and endure horrible situations. I don't always feel like being an advocate. I'm not always strong. That's okay too. I hope I have demonstrated with these stories how a compassionate health professional can make a difference, that little things matter. What is not a big deal for health professionals, like topless patients, might be a big deal for us. Those who work in healthcare can make a hard situation better by demonstrating compassion. For my whole mammogram experience, all I can say is, I know you can do better. For the ultrasound technologist, I say, thank you. Thank you for making things a little bit easier for a scared, traumatized woman with breast cancer. What you did matter. In fact, all those so-called little things you did that took no extra time at all mattered to me a lot. For that, I am tremendously grateful. Okay, I want to focus on the first story because I think it's important to share best practice uh, for learning. And there were four things in my ultrasound appointment that this gentleman did for me. He gave me a warm welcome because first impressions do mean a lot. He told me what he was going to do as he was doing it and what he was going to do next. And that lessened my anxiety. He provided a healing environment with the soft lighting and the classical music and also gave me some dignity by allowing me to change in a change room into a gown. And he told me what the follow-up would be. Those are all like awesome patient-centered things that don't take more time to do. So I believe the standard of care in healthcare should heal instead of harm. So my question to you is, how can you help create healing environments for your patient, whether it's with you if you have direct patient contact or your physical space if you have any influence over that or your staff if you're managing staff. This is a quote from The Little Prince. It says, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. So I want to reflect on the importance of listening and acting on patient stories and how that can improve the quality of communication. So first, I'll give a definition of patient and family-centered care, and this is from the Institute for Patient and Family-Centered Care down in the U.S. They say, patient and family-centered care is an approach to the planning, delivery, and evaluation of healthcare that is grounded in mutually beneficial partnerships among healthcare providers, patients, and families. It is about offering patients respect, dignity, information sharing, and a chance to participate in their own care. So the four words I hope you can remember are respect, dignity, information sharing, and participation. Think of the story that I read and think about how you can act upon what you learn to create positive change in your own health settings. Waiting room, signs, the welcome experience, if dignity is offered to patients. Even zooming back to before the appointment, are people treated with respect before the appointment in the booking process? This uh, that I'm talking about are the so-called soft skills that are actually harder than technical skills because soft skills are about working with human beings. Humans are tricky because we're all different. The soft skills are what the little prince quote is about. Some things are invisible to the eye. 
Listening is like that. It's invisible. What does good listening look like to patients? Not just listening, but feeling understood and that action will be taken if appropriate. People who work in healthcare are often fixers. It's okay if you don't know how to fix something and say you don't know. Silence is okay too. Feeling seen and heard and like you are an important human being is crucial as patients often feel invisible when they are sick or injured. Demonstrating small kindnesses are a way to show patients that you've been listening to them, like a pat on the hand or a warm blanket or dim lighting and nice music. All those things create a healing environment for us patients who are suffering. Another part about listening to patients is feedback. Please give us a chance to give feedback in a safe space that won't compromise our care. And from that, you have learnings to make improvements to your practice. I have a friend whose daughter had a brain tumor. My friend had a chance to present to radiology staff all about her daughter's experiences getting MRIs over the years. One big thing to her daughter was about dignity, as it's important to me too. She felt exposed when she only had one hospital gown on because it was open at the back or the front. The radiologist heard and acted on that story and started offering double gowns to patients. They changed their policy based on that patient feedback. Giving patients an option to double gown or not, that's patient-centered care. It gives us some control and autonomy and in places where we often feel vulnerable and powerless. Patient feedback leads to quality improvement. Also, if you give patients the opportunity to give you feedback, you don't only get negative feedback. There's a website called Care Opinion that is used in the UK and Australia where patients share their stories anonymously online. Care Opinion has found that over 65% of the time, patients give positive feedback. And what Care Opinion does is they share that feedback back with the staff. If you ask patients for feedback, you'll get constructive ideas so you can improve and you'll get positive feedback so you can share that with your staff too. Positive feedback is good for morale, especially in these days when organizations struggle with staff retention. But first, you have to be brave enough to open yourself up to all feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hmm. This is a picture of... um, Kathy, who is a nurse practitioner, talking to my son, Aaron, when Aaron was about 10 years old or so. Uh, clearly, they are delighted with one another. Um, you know, and this is just a reminder that patients should never be treated as a bother. They are actually the reasons for healthcare. The importance of active listening to gain patient trust and rapport is about connection and picking up cues from one another. When I was in radiation treatment for cancer, I remember the radiation therapist who commented on my toenail polish or chit-chatted with me about the weather. And believe me, in Canada, if you ever want to bring up conversation with Canadian, uh, you just have to talk about the weather. Contrast that to another therapist who told me right when I came in that I only had 12 minutes to do my radiation and how that shut down any kind of connection. It implied to me, hurry up and shut up so we can finish with you. The first encounter with a chit-chat about my toenail polish was healing. The second one was harmful. I remember once when Aaron was about 13 years old, um, he spoke to a group of medical students about having Down syndrome and what he wanted them to know about working with people with Down syndrome. 
And Aaron was wearing an ice hockey t-shirt and ice hockey is very big here in Canada. And it was very heartening to me after he was done his speech. Um, well, some of the medical students just got up and left. They were clearly uncomfortable with him and perhaps had never met somebody with an intellectual disability before. But there were a few choice students who came up to Aaron to connect with him. They gave him a high five or a fist bump and they commented on his t-shirt with the hockey team and kind of razzed him about the team he was cheering for. That is what connection is really all about. So chit chat creates connection. It helps us even to get to know you a little bit and it creates space for us to trust you. So relationships are a really important part of patient-centered care. And relationships go like this. First, we have to see you, and then we have to get to know you in order to like you, and then we'll trust you. That's the way it works, in my experience anyways. So my own experience with radiologists is that I've only seen a radiologist one time despite my many, many scans, and that was at the cancer hospital after a follow-up mammogram and ultrasound that detected more suspicious spots, as they called them. I cannot tell you how much it meant to me for that radiologist to come out of his office to talk to me about what he saw and explain the next steps. Relationships are about, first, we have to see you before we get to know you like you trust you. And often you're invisible to us. And I know you don't have time to talk to every patient, but I think sometimes if there's some life-changing information, like the first time when I was told that I needed a breast biopsy after my, my regular ultrasound, is a clerical staff told me that. She'd not been trained in disclosing diagnosis, and I was told this in the middle of a busy waiting room when a lot of people could overhear my private information. I think if there's serious information to disclose and you can, it really helps us to see you, a professional who can comfort us and answer our questions. But even if you don't have direct patient contact, you can guide your staff about how to do it well, how to be human, Make sure there's a private space available. Engage in chit-chat. Get to know patients a little bit. Tell them clearly what the next steps are and where to go if they have any questions. When I talk about patient-centered care, I hear this a lot. I don't have time to spend with patients. This quote is from a book called Compassionomics, which is basically a literature search of all the studies about compassion in healthcare. You will see the authors found the opportunities for compassion when they arise, to respond to it, it only takes 31.5 seconds. It is really important for patients to feel cared for. Making the time to show you care really makes a difference, whether it's a kind word, a hand on the shoulder, a gesture like bringing someone a warm blanket. It does not necessarily take more time and in fact will save you time in the end with having to deal with an angry patient who has a complaint. Compassionomics says it takes 31.5 seconds to make a patient feel understood. It is important to show people you care in healthcare, and it takes very little time. This is something you make the time to do. You don't take the time. Listening is a way to show respect to patients, and it is the invisible work that you do that matters as much as the work your tasks on a checklist. I wanted to add something uh, very practical this is from a children's hospital, and I know if there's students in the crowd, you might learn through acronyms. So this doesn't just apply to pediatrics, this also applies to adult healthcare. 
And it talks about how to enter a patient space, a space that a patient's in, whether it's a hospital room or a clinic room or a treatment area, whatever. The first thing you do is knock or rattle the curtain if there's not a door. Introduce yourself, describe what you're going to do, and slow down. And another S, I could add another S to this, a way to slow down is to sit down. So often us patients are down low and and the professional is above us and that really creates a power imbalance. So is there a way you can sit down? So this is something very practical you can take away is kids. Okay, this picture is of uh, my daughter Ella and uh, my son Isaac and they're holding Aaron when he was first born. And uh, just as an aside, my daughter Ella is now a pediatric nurse who works at a children's hospital um, since Aaron's 20 now, so 20 years later. And my son Isaac's a musician. And Aaron, in in fact, himself is an actor and a model. So it just reminds me of this picture that everybody grows up. I want to talk a bit about the ramifications of language and the trauma that can occur when words are not carefully chosen. Often, I've found since Aaron was born... Uh, Down syndrome and disability in general is really placed in a deficit-based lens. And this this picture is to ask this question, are we celebrating babies with Down syndrome or are we pitying them? And I always suggest when I talk to people who disclose diagnosis of a new baby with Down syndrome to say congratulations and not I'm sorry to open a conversation with the family. And just to think about how language is laden with value. If Aaron had had a prenatal diagnosis, I probably would have been told that he had a risk of having Down syndrome versus having a chance of having Down syndrome and how risk is very value-laden. But chance isn't. It's a value-neutral word. For instance, you don't have the risk of winning the lottery, but you do have a chance of it. So thinking about the words that you choose is important. Another tip about language, not asking questions at the very end of an appointment. Do you have any questions? Just as you're going out the door but asking what questions do you have and then pausing and counting to 10 to allow patients to collect their thoughts. So I'll demonstrate this. Somebody taught this to me once and you can count to 10 just by clicking your tongue on the roof of your mouth. And I'll show this to you how long 10 seconds is. So if you were a patient and I was a clinician, I would say, what questions do you have? And that was 10 seconds. It seems like a long time, but that silence allows us to think. Lastly, I want to talk about the concept of health literacy. And my challenge to you is to reframe health literacy, because really I believe that health literacy is the professional's responsibility, not the patient's responsibility. Health literacy should be on the shoulders of the person communicating health information. And in most cases, that's you as a professional. If you're responsible to make sure patients understand instructions, education, or a diagnosis, then you have to talk to them in ways they understand. Not everybody speaks the same language. Think about, do you have interpreters readily available? Not everyone is comfortable reading the written word. Do you have videos or graphic books or other ways to share information? Do you spell out acronyms and explain things in plain language so that everybody understands? And this is a patient-centered care thing about engagement. Ideally, you could have a patient or a group of patients look at your written materials before they are published. 
when talking to patients, is the environment right? Is there a private room, comfortable seating? You know, you could even be a secret shopper in the space that you have for patients, like in your waiting rooms or your treatment rooms. Do your environments offer privacy and dignity? When giving health information, not talking too fast, pausing for questions, acknowledging emotions, not interrupting. There's a very famous um, study, it's an American study from 2018, that says on average, physicians interrupt patients uh, 11 seconds after patients start speaking. And in this picture, you can see there are three people in the picture, a clinician, a patient, and presumably a caregiver. So communication is not always just a back and forth between two people. In this case, there could be three. The focus should always be on the patient, but the caregiver should not be excluded either. When I was given my son's Down syndrome diagnosis, I remember nothing the physician said except for this kind of blah, 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 Down syndrome. I heard the words Down syndrome and that was it. 20 years later, I do remember exactly what that room looked like and that my doctor immediately left the room afterwards. He was clearly uncomfortable and I had to sit there alone with my baby. That was traumatic. So don't make the assumption that people understand what you've said, especially if it's with unexpected news. Often we can't retain information well when we're sick and in pain or under extreme stress and have an easy way for us to follow up with you or your staff when we think of questions after you're gone. So health literacy is about a two-way or three-way communication. It is up to the person who is communicating to make sure they are understood. So I've talked about three things today, the importance of listening to and acting on patient stories, including the importance of feedback, the ramifications of language, and the concept of health literacy. And I'll end here on a quote, which is a poem, because I'm a writer, I love poems, poem by W.H. Auden that says, we are all here on earth to help others. What on earth the others are here for, I don't know. So thank you for caring for patients during what is often the hardest times of our lives. And thank you for your kind attention today. Thank you very much to Sue Robbins there for not only recording that for the conference, but also for allowing us to to share it more widely on the podcast. Yeah, there was a lot in there, wasn't there? And uh, Mm. quite a bit of it resonated with me, particularly the experience of being on the receiving end of healthcare as opposed to being a healthcare provider. Now, I haven't had a serious illness, but I do have Eagle syndrome, Dixon. Have I talked about that on the podcast before? No, you haven't. You're free to go. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what Eagle syndrome is, it's uh, where you have an elongated ossified stylohyoid ligament, particularly if it's got a bit of a, a nasty hook on the end, and it can push onto various soft and squishy structures in your neck, like uh, the carotid sheath, uh, vagus nerve, glossopharyngeal nerve, uh, pharynx, etc. I didn't know I had Eagle syndrome, but I I started getting this recurrent pain when I turned my head and particularly if I poked myself in the neck. So as any good doctor would do, it's like, oh, I need to try and replicate the pain and really understand it. So I I went to town (laughs) and it ended up being for a period of maybe three months, I'd have this recurrent pain, which not only was on swallowing, but also referred to the ear. And I had an MR and that didn't show anything. And I had a repeat MR and that didn't show anything. And I went to an ENT surgeon who told me I might have tonsillar cancer. 
mm. and suggested I remove my tonsils. And I was like, oh, maybe I had another MR. And then my wife, who is a radiologist, but not a head and neck radiologist, she's just Hermione Granger. She looked at it and she said, don't you think it's Eagle syndrome? And I'm like, no, it can't possibly be that. I've spent hours looking at these. And sure enough, there was a really, really long bilateral, but particularly on the right, where it's got this nasty uh, sort of hockey stick shape. And because I'd been poking at it, it'd become inflamed and I was getting referred pain. And one morning I ended up, on a Sunday morning, I ended up in so much pain that I couldn't swallow. And I had this neurogenic sort of pain shooting up into my ear, my Mm. external ear canal. And I took all the analgesia I had at home, which wasn't much. And I was still, it was kind of the worst pain I've had. And so I went to the eye and ear hospital down the road, which is next door to the hospital that I work at. And I went to the emergency department and I said, hello, while drooling, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Associate Professor Frank Gaylord from the Royal Melbourne Radiology Department, because at this stage, I was wanting to jump every possible (laughs) cue that I could. I really need to see someone. And so I got in there and this, I don't know, intern, resident, junior registrar or someone came and saw me. And I was expecting, you know, a little bit of, of red carpet treatment. Instead, he gave me this long lecture about chronic opioid abuse and how taking opioids for chronic pain is not appropriate and how, you know, there's a lot of drug seeking going on. And it was just so dehumanizing and Mm. patronizing, especially because it was the first time I've ever gone anywhere for any kind of analgesia. And that feeling of, oh boy, that's what it feels like to be in the waiting room and be ignored and then not believed and have these questions that make you feel like you're lying or you're an idiot and not telling the truth or not describing things properly. That was such a important experience to understand how patients who believe they know what's wrong with them but aren't believed by the medical establishment, what that experience is like. And we spoke mm. a few weeks ago about, you know, Chiari malformations sometimes fall into that because a lot of people that have minor Chiari malformations attribute many symptoms to it, even though it might not be applicable, or Tarlov cysts. And even though I think there's still a lot of people that misattribute symptoms, that feeling of not being believed was was really, really scary. And I, it hasn't left me at all. Mm. And she does a great job of sort of highlighting what that's like. Even just getting a scan, even though you're a radiologist, it's amazing how quickly you switch from being that confident, relaxed radiologist to just mm. being an anxious, awkward patient, not kind of knowing, do I put a gown on? Where do I walk now? Do you want me to get on the scanner now? Or should I stand here for a bit? It's amazing how quickly that happens, you know, or you're yeah. getting a, a colonoscopy, although the propofol does help with that one. <laughs> <laughs> propofol helps all the time. <laughs> but it is amazing though, sometimes you can put yourself in a patient's shoes just by thinking about yourself mm. in a similar situation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. But I think in some ways actually trying to model what a patient is or should be feeling after your own experiences can can lead you in the wrong direction in some way. And I think Sue highlights the importance of not conflating what you as an individual or a clinician think is fine with versus what someone else from a different background 
thinks is fine. For example, if I went to get an ultrasound, I wouldn't care if the sonographer was male or female. And I don't particularly have hang-ups about taking my top off in front of a doctor or something. But that doesn't mean that someone from a different culture or a different experience doesn't have a very different experience. And it's pretty easy to be presented patients who don't fit into the way that your department or your healthcare service works as them being difficult or precious. Mm. And sometimes it's just that your service is not really flexible enough to adapt to other people's needs, which is, again, something that Sue, I think, demonstrated really nicely by contrasting those two different experiences. You can absolutely see how practices end up being like that. And, and I'm afraid that sometimes, you know, the hospital where I work probably has times when patients have to conform to our processes more mm. than they probably need to. You know, it's a form of bias, isn't it? Sometimes we just want to assume because it's easier for us that every patient is relaxed and they're able to comprehend exactly what we're saying to them, but it just it just doesn't work that way. It's not because they're trying to be difficult, as you say. Every patient, you know, every caregiver has a life going on outside of their mm. radiology appointment that day. You know, that can influence their reactions and their fears in ways that you just, you know, you can't really grasp in that first five seconds that you've met with them. Yeah, absolutely. That particular experience of, of not knowing how a patient got somewhere reminded me of a passage from the commencement speech by David Foster Wallace uh, titled, This is Water. Have you come across that online? <laughs> no, no idea. <laughs> so anyway, David Foster Wallace, he was, because um, he committed suicide, unfortunately, a number of years ago, a writer from the US. And he's best known for a novel called Infinite Jest, which is a tome. It's, it's like a thousand pages long and with footnotes that run into multiple pages. I've only ever like opened it and then quickly closed it again in, in fear because uh, <laughs> it's just too much of a commitment, maybe when I'm <laughs> retired. But he's written many essays and many short stories and they're wonderful. He's an absolute master craftsman. But he also gave this speech to a group of college graduates, uh, which found its way online as an audio, and there's a transcript available. We'll link to both of them. But in this commencement speech to young men from a privileged college, he goes on about how you can go through life viewing everything through your very personal lens of experience. And at one point, he talks about how, and he gives this example of going through a day at work and he's tired and he, he goes home and he needs to stop at the shops to pick up some groceries. And he's in the supermarket and he's trying to drive to the supermarket and all these things are happening. And everything that happens around him, he's viewing it through his lens of being tired and just wanting to get home. And mm. so it appears that everyone is out to just delay him and everyone is stupid and slow and malicious. He then says how important it is to stop and try to remember that people having different experiences that leads them to this behavior. And he says that this is really hard, but the passage that stuck with me that I was able to find is the following, and I'll just read it out. He says, but in most days, if you were aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. 
Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. And it's just that idea that the person you're seeing who is being difficult or precious and not conforming to your department's processes, they've got to that point through a whole series of events. It's not necessarily what they're like normally and that you have to be generous with your compassion because who knows how you will be in you know a couple of weeks' time when you're in an emergency department with a broken leg or, or something. Generous with your compassion, but just generous with yourself, You know, giving yourself and being present with the patient. That's what I like to remind myself to do is this is a time to be present because it's, it's really easy to just go in there and go all right my task is to get this biopsy and mm. you know as as sue said the role of a radiologist or the clinician in that setting is not just to perform the task but to help with the healing by being present with the patient and acknowledging their situation acknowledging potential discomfort and it doesn't take that long is the other the no. other point that she made. I love how they uh they quantified it to what was it 35 seconds yeah <laughs> a time and motion study very specific <laughs> <laughs> the other issue that Sue sort of raised which I actually have to admit I find awkward on a on probably a weekly basis is the lack of private space for hmm. consent yeah. and discussion and we do have some rooms available, but they're often full or you're just not, you know, the radiographer or the nurse will bring you out to see the relative or the patient in a public space. You find yourself talking to them in a setting which is really not, not ideal. Uh, mm. Often they're already changed and ready for the biopsy. You know, there's all these best practices of making sure you can send people before they're in the room, before they're changed so that they feel like they can back out. But I don't think our departments, or at least the departments that I've worked in, and this is not just my hospital, but the dozen or so places that I've worked in, I haven't seen any that are really well set up for that. And finding the right space is often the thing that takes planning Hmm. and therefore time, and therefore it's not possible to do it. Most of my interactions with patients are, you know, directly before, during, or after a scan, after a procedure. And so the environment is dictated by that. It's not great. But, you know, as Sue said, you know, knocking on the door, even though it's, you might think of it as your ultrasound room, yes. uh, you still knock on the door as you enter, you know, lower yourself down to the patient's level if you can, if there's a stool or something. I often use an appropriate physical touch or touch patient on a shoulder. These are the kind of things that don't take long to do, but they can really generate the trust as well as that positive uh, experience for the patient. I think they probably save you time in the long run as well. Because the extra 35 seconds per patient, it takes a lot of those to undo the one person who raises a complaint or has a terrible experience or a complication because they don't keep still, et cetera, or they don't Mm. understand. So I think in the long run, you're actually saving time. It's like the time that you spend setting up your trolley for a procedure or setting up the patient to be in a good position for your procedure. Mm. That's never wasted. That's a great investment of time. Now, uh, we should wrap it up, but I've got one more thing written here. 
and it says chance instead of risk. Mm. This message really hit home for me in Sue's presentation because I have a cousin with Down syndrome. He's only a few years younger than me. And he is an absolute ray of light. You know, I'm not a religious man, Frank, you know that. But he's just an amazingly positive presence in the life of everybody he knows. And yes, you know, he's had health troubles. Yes, his disability has presented a whole lot of challenges for his parents and his siblings. But I can completely understand why those value-laden terms like risk are things that we as health professionals need to be made more aware of. It's only when they're conscious that you can actually start actively avoiding using those terms. So I found that bit quite powerful. No, I think that's right. Also because the moment you use the word risk, you're communicating your belief about something. Mm. Um, It puts Down syndrome in the same category as cancer. And that's that's not a universally held belief and by many people, but it's just such a pejorative word. And even if you don't think it's a good thing, or even if you think it is a a terrible thing, that only makes it worse, right? There is Mm -hmm. no way that this makes it better. So I think avoiding that kind of language is really good. All right, we better wrap this one up, though, Gaylord. And how can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and or feedbacks, but probably not solicitations to be on the podcast to promote your weight loss tablets or <laughs> or anything <laughs> or anything pretty much that said sue can be found at www.suerobbins.com and on twitter as at sue robbins yvr and i said i'd plug her book so her latest book is ducks in a row healthcare reimagined and she describes that one as a scrappy challenge to the established healthcare world And her first book is called Bird's Eye View, Stories of a Life Lived in Healthcare. And that's more of a memoir of her experiences as a caregiver and cancer patient. And thank you very much to Sue once again for her contribution to the conference and the podcast. Even though I don't remember the title of my yet-to-be-finished or published book, I now have to have a colon in it. It has to be Harry Potter knockoff colon (laughs) some other thing. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And and what else (laughs) can people do to help us out, Frank? And you can also help out by leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. That's right. Buy my book, buy my book, and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad, and your homework is to listen to that David Foster Wallace commencement speech. You won't regret it. Okay, very good. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.